Uh, one of the things that we're, we're always reading as a church staff, and one of the things that uh, John and Katie and I read uh, over a year ago, it was just before I think Pastor Terry came on staff, was this book, Do Hard Things. Now, Do Hard Things was written by uh, two brothers who are teenagers, or at least were teenagers at the time. It's written by teenagers, for teenagers, and uh, the subtitle here, it's A Teenage Rebellion Against Low Expectations. That's what the book is about. It's these teenage brothers who are fed up with uh, living in a culture that expects them to do hardly anything as a teenager. And so we read this uh, with, obviously, our, our youth ministry in mind. It's actually, uh, the book was the catalyst behind the missions trip that the youth group took to West Virginia this summer. As we read that, and under the conviction, we said, we need to be doing more, and we need to be creating a place where some of our youth can be challenged in ways they haven't been challenged before. This very Sunday, almost a year ago, was scheduled uh, because we said it's not right uh, that our youth uh, are so separated in our congregation. We want to bring them back into the life of the church and try to think of authentic ways to do that. Even the architecture of our building doesn't help us with that. Uh, While it's convenient at times, um, I think overall the architecture even seems to tell us that they're you know, should be cut away to a zoo uh, way over there. That was my zoo, too, when I was here, so I, I understand. But that's what the book is about. That's kind of how it's entered into the life of the church, and that's how what we're going to work through today. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a teenager, and how as a church, and as a family, as parents, and as people, do we receive teenagers. And so, with that, I have a quiz question for you. The first documented use of the word teenager was when? A. Tyndale's first edition English New Testament translation in 1526. B. Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in 1623. C. Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac in 1739. D. Theodore Roosevelt's Strenuous Life Speech in 1899, E, A Reader's Digest Issue in 1941, and because I was listening a few Sundays ago, F, none of the above. (laughs) (laughs) See, I listen. The answer is, is E, A Reader's Digest Issue in 1941. Prior to that, there's no reference, no documented reference of the idea of a teenager. And prior to this period, prior to this uh, early half of the 20th century, the teenager chapter of life was not so clearly recognized. If you read or, or and, and if you examine culture, the teenage period is less clearly delineated. In fact, in many respects, you were either a child or you were an adult. That's kind of how it was understood. You were a child or you were an adult. And as you began to develop as a child, as things in your life began to develop, so did the expectations alongside of them. When you could do something like an adult, you were expected to do it like an adult. Piece by piece, the development into adulthood carried along with it the expectations of adult behavior. Many of uh, our older members, I I think, probably can remember this far better than uh, even I can, uh, because I hear the stories of my grandparents. They were doing things at 11, driving farm equipment, and uh, 
Things that, you know, we wouldn't even let an 18-year-old do these days. But if you could do it, you are expected to do it. Now, I want to read you a few examples. These are a few brief examples from the book. Um, just to give you a feel for the kinds of things that used to be done. And by the way, this isn't simply uh, extra-biblical. They exist in Scripture. Think, for example, of David. Now, we certainly know, if you know, I'm not going to preach to you, David slew Goliath, therefore teenagers should be able to do that. That is a significant event. It's of singular uh, kind of caliber. But, But in the story of the calling of David and the anointing of David in scriptures, the prophet Samuel goes to David's father Jesse and says, I'm here to anoint one of your sons king. And so Jesse, if you recall, he lines all of his sons up, lines them kind of up in order. And Samuel, the prophet, walks past the sons and says, I'm just not feeling it with any of these guys. This is not, the Lord is, I just don't have a vibe that the Lord has any of these. Don't you have any other sons? And this is what Jesse says. He says, yeah, I have another son. His name's David. But he's not here. Do you happen to know where he is? He's tending to the family's flocks. Now, that's almost, almost unnoticeable given all the other events. But if you think about it, first of all, we know that David is not a man because he's not allowed to go fight. All he's allowed to do is bring milk and cheese and bread to his brothers on the front lines. And so he's certainly not 18. He's, I doubt he's 16. I mean, I would likely think that he's around the 12 plus or minus time frame. So he's, he's pre-man, and yet what is he doing in his household? He is ensuring that the welfare of the house, meaning the flocks, are fed and tended to. That, that is a kind of expectation that I think is, would be absolutely unique in our current culture and setting. Here's a few others from, uh, from this book that these fellows wrote. George was born in northern Virginia in 1732 to a middle-class family. When he was 11 years old, he lost his father. Even though, even though his peers never considered him very bright, he applied himself to his studies He mastered geometry, trigonometry, and surveying by the time he was 16. At 17 years old, George had the chance to put his studies to use at his job. And he received the job as the official surveyor of Culpeper County, Virginia. This was not a boy's job. For the next three years, George endured the hardships of frontier life as he measured and recorded Previously unmapped territories, his measuring tools were heavy logs and chains. George was a man at 17. This George became our first president. Uh, by the way, it was at 17, between 17 and 20 is where George Washington made his fortune. As a boy serving, as a boy man, serving unmapped territories in our United States. Here's another story. David was born in 1801 near the city of Knoxville, Tennessee, where his father was serving in the state militia. At 10 years old, David began a career at sea, serving as a naval cadet on the warship Essex. At 11, he saw his first battle. At age 12, David was given command of a ship that had been captured in battle and was dispatched with a crew to take the vessel and its men back to the United States. 
David Farragut became the first admiral in the U.S. Navy. Clara was born in Oxford, Massachusetts on Christmas Day, 1821. She was a baby of the family with 10 years separating herself from her next youngest sibling. She was a timid child, so terrified of strangers that she hardly was able to speak. Then something happened that would change her life forever. When she was 11, her older brother David fell from the roof of the barn and was seriously injured. Young Clara was frantic and begged to help care for him. Once in the sick room, Clara surprised everyone by demonstrating all the qualities of an experienced nurse. She learned better than anyone how to make her brother comfortable. Little by little, the doctor allowed her to take over all his care, with his complete recovery lasting two years. A year later, at age 14, Clara became the nurse of her father's hired man who had come down with smallpox. And then to more patients as the epidemic spread through the Massachusetts village. By age 17, she was a successful school teacher with over 40 students, some nearly as old as she was. Clara Barton went on to found the American Red Cross. Now, I'm, I recognize that these are exceptional individuals. They are history makers, and the implication here is not that our young people, uh, our young adults, our teenagers, should be able to duplicate the kinds of things that George Washington, David Farragut, and Clara Barton did. They, they are m- names in history, but this is what I just want you to observe. Just observe this for a second. Notice when the seeds of greatness are being planted in the lives of these children. Notice that. When are the seeds of great accomplishments being placed in their lives? Is it when they're 25? Is it when they graduate college? Is it when they're 30? Is it when they're in their midlife crisis going, what have I done in my life? No, it's when they're 11, 12, 14, 15. The seeds of great accomplishment are taking root and they are starting to give birth there. That's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice, or just to imagine, is even if... Captaining a captured vessel back to the United States seems a little large for us to get our hands around. What do you think the mundane things the teenagers of the time were doing? Like, so if David Farragut's accomplishments after the Battle of the Essex, if those accomplishments are in fact unique, what are the regular kinds of things that teenagers were doing during that time? I mean, it may be irregular that David Farragut was placed in command of the ship, but there were 11 and 12-year-olds all over the naval ships at the time. And it may be a little unusual that George Washington was the county surveyor for Culpeper, Virginia. And that may be a little unusual, but it should not, it's not entirely unusual that 16 and 17-year-old people were receiving employment that involved them going out by themselves into the frontier with heavy logs and chains. So what's happened? Why do we not have any of this today? Well, here's a reason. Early in the 1900s, child labor laws were introduced to protect children, developing children from the abuses of the Industrial Revolution. And so there were major abuses that were occurring And the federal government came in and they began to set age limits on what could and could not be done at certain ages. I believe that is when the age of 16 started to enter into kind of the cultural perspective. And it did. It did did what it was intended to do. In large ways, it protected. It 
protected many children from some of the ills and abuses of the industrial age. But there were some unintended consequences. Now, what used to be a transitional period of life, so the, the adolescence of the teenager, which was simply the change from a child to adult. It was the cocoon phase of going from caterpillar to butterfly. Now, instead of it being a transitional time that was just dealt with, with... Uh, you know, if they can do this, then let them do that. And when they can do more, they can do that. Instead of it being dealt with that, that way, now teenagers were placed in this holding tank where they felt like adults. They have the spirit of adults. They have the mind of developing adults, but they can't do anything. Or at least they can do very little. It's in a way of making, it's, it's a way we've made the cocoon phase as significant as the caterpillar or the butterfly. They have the body and the spirit of an adult, but we've severed it from all adult expectations. In many ways, they are an adult, but society has said, you are not yet ready to do adult things, and we've plagued them with low expectations. This, in the book, one thing they do is they, they went online to kind of Google teenage expectations. And I, so I checked them on it. I said, well, I'm going to go Google the same thing. And it, it, I'm convinced I found the exact website they went to. It was the first place I went. These are the teenage expectations recommended to you by the world, by the Google. Okay? If your child, or if you're 10 to 14 years old, are you ready for what you're expected to do? These are some expectations Remember George, David, and Clara. Okay? If you're 10 to 14, you should be able to make your bed. <laughs> and if a phone call comes to the house, you should also be able to take a message. <laughs> and weekly. Weekly, you should be able to clean your room. Parentheses, with help from mom or dad. Now, that's for 14 and under. If you are 15 and older, here are the reasonable expectations. And it says this, it says, and besides, this is what it says, and besides everything they're already doing, it says a daily chore, just one. One daily chore. They should be able to recognize when the gas is getting below a quarter tank in the car. And now they should be able to clean their room without parental help. That's 17. 17. George Washington was making the equivalent of $100,000 a year serving at 17. And they should be able to make their bed. Now at the very end of this website it says this. Please don't feel that your teenagers should be doing all of this. So this morning, and we're going to end up looking towards Scripture, but maybe you're not George Washington, and maybe you're not Clara Barton, and maybe, maybe you're not going to ever do anything that's history-making, but somewhere you, there has to be a challenging middle between George Washington and making your bed. And it, it's, not, it's not young adults, it's not your fault. And parents, it's not your fault. 
church, it's not our fault. It's kind of all of our faults. This is, anytime we approach a cultural issue, it, we all bear some kind of dimensional blame for this thing. That parents, you are somewhat to blame. Children, you are somewhat to blame for being content in your childishness. The church is certainly bearing the blame for not calling families to discipline their children, to give them high expectations. We all share the blame here. We, when we all know, the older you get, the more you know this is true, that we rise to our low expectations. Have you ever noticed you wake up, you have one thing to do that day, and it doesn't get done? If you ever wake up and you have 100 things to do that day, do you realize you do 95 of them? It's amazing what high expectations, expectations increase performance. That's just a truth. It's, it's verifiable at every level. So what are our expectations for our teenagers? We're in a high expectation community. This is an upwardly mobile community. This is a can-do place. The children in our homes are the children who can do, who are expected to dream. And yet, what are our expectations? I'd say if our children are lucky, they're expected to do well in school, or at least to work hard in school. That's a basic expectation they have. Maybe they're expected to exceed athletically. But outside of that, what are the cultural expectations of our area? I would say this. Teenagers are expected to be technologically adept, and they're expected to perform very highly sexually. Those are our high expectations for our teenagers. We assume that they will master technology in a way that we can't. And they do. I, I, why do they? Do they have some magic ability? No. It's, there, it's an expectation. They're rising to the common expectation that they can do this, and, and they do. Likewise, there's this expectation that they will be sexually promiscuous, that they will give their bodies over, and that they will seize the opportunity when they can. And what do they do? They rise to those Low expectations. Is there any good reason why the expectation cannot, isn't, that young men grow up to be gentlemen? To treat women with respect and honor? To think more highly of them than they do of themselves? Is there, is there any reason why the, the, the expectation that we place on, on our growing and maturing girls are that when they begin to look and feel like ladies, that they are ladies? and that they ought to treat their bodies in such a way that, that a, like a lady would treat it. But we don't give these expectations, we get, or we do in such a shallow way. When we, when we hope that our children are sexually pure, but we say to them, here's how a condom works, we have lowered the expectation. This doesn't have to be the case in Scripture, I would like to say Scripture makes it clear. It, uh, um, it's hard for me to say that, though. Uh, if you go to Scripture to find out what does the Bible say about teenagers, the answer is nothing. Or at least I would have to say is about nothing. Hardly anything. I mean, I have to allow room for there to be some teaching that I haven't found or that others haven't found. There is nary a word on the teenage life in Scripture, particularly as it relates to teaching. So there's times in Scripture when it says, and he was but a youth. 
well, maybe he's a teenager, but it's not, it's, it, the teaching isn't about the, how the, the youth ought to behave. It's just kind of a narrative. But when it gets to teaching about how we ought to behave, the Bible recognizes two main dichotomies, one dichotomy, two main ideas, child and adult. Those are the two ideas that are kind of recognized in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Does it say, when I became a teenager, I thought like an adult, but I was treated like a child? Or does it say, when I became a teenager, I wanted to think like an adult, but nobody expected me to think like an adult, so I didn't, because it's harder. Does it say that? No. It says, when I became a man, I put my childish ways behind me. Do you see that the scriptures, and, and there's more than this, okay? So this is inferential, but the scriptures seem to recognize that adolescence, which means to grow up, is exactly that. That it's a transitional phase. You're a child, and then you're not a child. The same book, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 says this, Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Does it say, in regards to evil, be an infant, but in your thinking, for teenagers, you should think of it this way. And Titus, and the slide behind you with the reading from Titus, the goal isn't to read the whole thing. I want you to recognize where all the teachings are landing. So Paul's letter to Titus is explaining the conduct of different members of the church. It says, older men ought to behave this way. Likewise, older women ought to behave this way. Who's next? Younger women and younger men. You know Paul's teaching for children? Obey your parents. Colossians, children obey your parents. He has, in Colossians, he teaches to a few categories. Husbands, wives, children, fathers. In Ephesians, he does the same thing. Husbands, wives, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says, in fact, it's the only command that comes with a promise, that it will go well with you. And then he says, fathers, don't exacerbate your children. Scripture says they're a child or they're an adult. And as they begin to develop, We begin to raise our expectations for them. So here's the question. Are you a child? This is to the young person. Are you a child or are you an adult? And this question should reach down to 11. I guess I'm convinced that if David Farragut is on a ship at 11, I can ask the question to you if you're 11. Are you a kid or are you an adult? And it doesn't need to be one broad answer. It doesn't need to be this this one monolithic answer. I am an adult. Examine the different areas of your life. The different dimensions of your life. Maybe physically you're you're, you're on your way towards adulthood. Maybe you're just now just starting to stink. That's That's a cue, by the way. When you really stink, you're an adult. Okay? When you got a shower every day, welcome to adulthood. Okay? Biologically, your body will tell you when you're an adult. When everything in you wants to break everybody else's rules, welcome to adulthood. God is saying, take grasp of it. Teach your young men to be self-controlled is the teaching of Titus. Who's he teach? I think that that teaching trickles all the way down to 13, to 12, to people who are without control. Are you a child or are you an adult? Young people, if they're feeding you, and clothing you, 
making your life possible, funding you, if they're waking you up for work, and if they're asking you to make your bed, use great caution as to how you demand adult freedom because you're acting like a child. Now, there's just enough time today to cause problems. I have no time to fix anything. (laughs) So... Next Sunday, we'll work on it. But sometimes, on some issues, this is one of these issues where we are, the church and the teachings of Scripture is so drastically unlike anything the world will ever tell you. Everything I'm saying now, we should expect outside these walls they would disagree with us. But this is just enough time to cause problems. I would say if you're a young adult, and this is, and this is uh, the teachings that, are, that have come out today, or, or if you have this feeling like I am older than I'm being treated, I would say this. This is the one thing I would say. Take all the expectations in your life right now, the things that you're being called to try to attain, make those the floor and not the ceiling. So little is being expected of you right now. Make it the floor. Make it the default position. At the very least, you're going to do those things. And set yourself a ceiling. If nobody else is doing it, set yourself a ceiling. Go plant the seeds of accomplishment now. And I would say to parents, make whatever move you can make to begin to call your children towards adulthood. That's the goal, right? Is to raise adults, not to raise teenagers. We're trying to raise adults. Call them to adulthood. And I recognize, right, raising children is like a chess match. So some of you, there's somebody out here who's pregnant with their first, and they're all dreamy. That's like the chess tables. Nobody's even moved a pawn yet. You have all these moves. You have all this strategy. You're in a great place to hear these kinds of things. There are some of us, some of you, who are so far into this chess match that you're in check. And you can't go anywhere, right? I mean, this is how it is. I'm somewhere in the middle. I've got a few moves left in me, but they're learning how to play, (laughs) you know? There's there's this this broad span, and I would say, if you feel like you're in checkmate, if you feel like you don't know how to play chess, and your kid does, and they have you cornered, I would say, call on Jesus. He knows how to play. I would say this is the time. You need to honestly begin to really pray. You need to see crisis in the development of your child towards adulthood. And you need to, I mean, this is a place where, where the broad church becomes part of the discipleship process. But for some of you, where it's early in the game, this is the time to set new strategy forward. I'll close with this illustration. By the way, this is the third chapter of this book. I just selected their their best chapter. And uh, I appreciate it. And next Sunday, we're going to do the same thing with regards to the church. But they, they began with this illustration. They said in India, they noticed that there are the, these, these work elephants. They have these massive work elephants in India that can like uproot trees and push down walls. They use them as, as backhoes and bulldozers. And when they're done, when it's a lunch break, and they have their big Indian elephant, like sitting there in the middle of the construction site or whatever they're doing, you know, when they want to go on their lunch break, you know what they do? They get this little twine, and they tie it around the back leg of the elephant, and they just tie it around the music stand, or a tiny sapling, or a little pole. And the elephant sits there and waits for them to finish their lunch. 
You know, and then when lunch is over, they untie it, and this massive machine starts to like knock walls over again. And the th- and 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 these these brothers were wondering, how is that possible? How is it that that this massive this massive creature can be trained not to rebel against this tiny little twine? And what they found out was, is when when the elephant is young, when it's this young elephant. They put a metal shackle around its foot and they chain it to something. And it fights and it fights and it fights, but it can't get loose. And after a while, it stops fighting. And so they replace the chain with a leather belt and a rope. And then after a while, it doesn't even fight that. And pretty soon, it's just this tiny little twine that's hooked to a twig. Are we doing that to you? Are we doing that to our children? This is the season of your life, it's the season of your children's lives to plant the seeds of great accomplishment. This is the season in Scripture where great people are called. David is called during the season. Josiah becomes a king at eight years old. At 18 years old, Josiah is putting wicked priests to death. Samuel becomes called to the Lord at a young age. This happens time and time again through Scripture. How have we trained our children? 